you're listening to The Consequential Podcast. I'm Dave, the other one's Roger. Hello. A.A. Gill is away. Which is to say that Lucy's not here this week. Um, This week we are looking at Southern Gothic in comics, which is a topic that has proven fascinating to research for a variety of reasons. Yeah, I was like, hey, let's do Southern Gothic. Dave was grudgingly sure you swamp-dwelling fucker, and then some things happened. Yes. Including none of the comics we expected to exist existing. That was nice. But we'll get on to that. Roger, what have you been reading? Not masses. Uh, I was mostly doing sort of nebulous gothic-y stuff. Swooshing around in an opera cape and... Yeah, kind of hanging out by the bayou, making culturally appropriate remarks about hoodoo. When I wasn't doing that, um, I had a look at a couple of singles and the new thing, newish thing from Faith Erin Hicks. I think people were probably expecting us to go into uh, the song from Labyrinth there, and I think it's to our eternal credit that we didn't. I am wearing very tight trousers. Are you going to do a little dance? A magic dance. Faith Erin Hicks. (laughs) So this is The Stone Heart, which is the second volume in her Nameless City trilogy, I think trilogy. Uh, Nameless City was, was, I think it was also my my pick last year. It It made my top three. I think it was my pick of the year. Um, A little bit of background. Faith Erin Hicks is brilliant. Um, Does sort of light, breezy, teen experience stuff very well. So Friends with Boys is one of her previous books, which is about a girl in a small town trying to fit in and all that jazz, except she befriends a ghost and there's... A magic arm and it's it's weird it's it's weird and it's fun and the Stoneheart is the second volume in her nameless uh, nameless city trilogy which has an amazing premise it's a bit more breezy all ages uh, like the, the feel is more is more all ages but by which I don't mean it's kind of noddy and basic but it's light and approachable uh, it's, it's really kinetic she's really good at making the action feel actiony but not in a biffo kapow sock visual noise fights way no, it's just fast-moving. Uh, jumping. She does characters jumping a lot, and she's really, really good at it. Now, that's a tiny neurotic thing to pick out, but she's really good at characters jumping, you feeling like, like they're like. jumping. Um, so, The Nameless City, overall, is the story of The Nameless City, a city that has been invaded so many times that even the original populace have basically forgotten its name. And it's caught at the intersection of three largish empires, um... The Dao, who are loosely modelled on um, kind of Bakamatsu area sort of samurai. Um, and the two other ones, I, I can't remember, who are loosely modelled on. It's it's medieval East Asia with massive licence, basically. Uh, and not exactly magic, but a lot more mysticism and you know forgotten civilizations that have risen and fallen. And... Basically, everyone's trying to work out the recipe for dynamite. That's what I do when left to my own devices. The, 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 the original builders of the Nameless City were engineers with mystical powers that have passed into legend, but it basically turns out they knew how to make explosives. And, um, Let's try nitrotoluene, kids, but I'm not telling you how to make it. And clay. Don't forget the clay. But uh, they... Um, so in, in the first one, you've got Kaidu, this kid who is from the Dao Empire, but is, like, a bit of a worse. Well, no, that, that's really not fair. He just doesn't want to be a child soldier, not unreasonably. 
but being a child soldier is super fucking cool, so all of his classmates are down right now well down on him. His dad is also a filthy, slimy piece nick that is into, you know, forging treaties and making trade alliances as opposed to just butchering everyone, so he's not very popular with his friends either. Turns out the Emperor is also a big softy and it's it's kind of what I like the reason I'm I'm kind of laying out that slightly crappy analogy is that She's really good at voice, and it's really good at presenting that way the Dao military echelons feel about these people. There is this tremendous tone of them being othered for wanting these perfectly reasonable things like a functioning civil, civil society. It's, it's really good at that experience. We're not just brought to it through an everyman modern perspective. It is kind of, you feel the slight social crush bearing down on, on Kaido and his dad for, for wanting these things. And he, he befriends native resident of the city, a girl called Rat, she, well that's the name she goes by. And they scamper around on rooftops and have hijinks and then bad shit goes down and they save the day, basically, that's volume one. It's absolutely joyous, it's utterly lovely, it's slightly painty, it's got this... It's, it's, it's Hakuzai Tintin? I think I know what you mean, but I'm like, gonna make you explain it anyway. So that um, oh, I never pronounced this right. Ukoye, ukoye, the the float, floating, floating world. world aesthetic, the highly stylized, often woodcut, sometimes watercolor. Like you know, if I were being an arsehole, I'd say it's Japanese rococo. Um, but that that style, um, but simplified and pulled down a bit to something that, you know, you can draw in the same amount of time because she's got to get the fucking book done, but that you can also, you know, print at quite high quality and that has its own idiom. So there's a little bit of that Lean Claire, Tintin sort of action comic style and a very heavy Asian influence. And yeah, it, it looks like you're averaging Hergé and Hakuzai, basically. Um, absolutely delightful. Second volume picks up where the first one left off, uh, but amps up the mystery and intrigue about the previous society and the courtly intrigue and ends with one of the dickhead generals doing some dickhead general stuff. And like, it, It's act two or three, it's obviously act two or three, but each book sort of has a three-act structure, but obviously the trilogy has to have one as well. So this is this is its, um, its Empire Strikes Back-y sort of... You've got a bit of a relaxation in the kind of overarching plot, but you've got a lot of very deep personal plot. I mean, it's not a chase, but it, it's almost as good as the first volume. It definitely feels like it's taking a bit of a breath and taking some space for the more personal stories. So if you enjoyed the adventure romp elements of the first one, there's less of that. If you enjoyed the character work, there's much, much more. Uh, it's, it's visually absolutely lovely. It's, it's just a nice thing. Nice things are nice to have. Hmm? The third volume's out this year as well, isn't it? Mm. She is spanking these out. Like, I assume she's been working on them for like a billion years or something, or she's just crazy fast. I think they were, um, I think they were queued up to a certain extent, mm. yes. And also, Geordie Belair's doing the colouring, and she's fairly speedy as well. Mm. It is very well coloured. It's, um, it's sort of not ink wash, but has a feel as though it could be. The colouring is very thematically appropriate. Have you, have you read... Did you read the first one? I've read the first volume, yes. Mm. I wasn't as taken with it. It was a nice, fun adventure, but it wasn't sort of one of my mm. favourites of the year. I think it was perfectly perfectly pleasant, but I didn't. it didn't click in the same way as it did for you. The, the second one has a bit less of that... Um, 
slightly Disney-ish magic of friendship across cultural divides thing because it's already done that and gets into now people have to actually get along with each other in the real world and humans are squishy and complex. So although it pulls back on the action beats, the emotional beats are at a higher intensity. It's uh, you know, it, it's. I, I think the second the second volume, whilst it, the plot doesn't quite pull it along, pull it pull it along with quite the same momentum. The emotional heft of it is rather stronger. Tell us about Iceman. Oh golly, yes, Sina Grace on Iceman. So there should be two issues out by now, I think. I've only read the first. I've only read the first. I think it was bi-weekly, so the second one should be should have come out last week, or either that or it's out tomorrow. Um, So, Iceman, yes, right, they did the time-skipped kiddies in the present day thing and had all the little itty-bitty X-Men running around with the little, with the grandpappy X-Men and everything was confusing and it was a time travel thing because it's Marvel and then all of a sudden, and in a slightly clumsy and maybe not okay but sort of okay in the end way, Bobby Drake done got all gay. That wasn't an effect of time travel, he just came to terms with his own sexuality. To be fair, if you were going to, like, Dumbledore one of the X-Men, then Bobby Drake's string of hideous failed relationships with women he hasn't been very nice to can at least be retconned into a whole bunch of queer angst. And, of course, his powers to turn his entire body into rock-hard ice do help out when, you know, he can't quite rise to the occasion. He's an Omega-level mutant. I reckon he's got it that selective. Yeah. Oh, no, it absolutely does. Just uh, just right up the middle so the outside stays warm. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like jamming a lollipop stick down there. Omega mutant. So this is Marvel's first book. It's not Marvel's first gay character, obviously, but it's Marvel's first solo title with a gay lead written by a gay person. Yeah, and when they've done it before, it's... They've not been that bad. It's not been like bury your gays all the time. So North Star had an okay time of it. Ultimate X Men gayed up Colossus, and that was mostly kind of fine. But yeah, this is the first time they've given. Is it Iceman's first solo book? I don't think. Yes. It is. Uh, no, not his first. Not his first solo book. I think it was one in two thousand and four. Hmm. But it's Sina Grace, who wrote a bunch of things. Um, I, I love Not My Bag, which is his sort of autobiographical fashion memoir. Um, he also wrote Self Obsessed, which is this sort of anthology book, but all of the contributors are him. Yeah. It's, it's a, that sounds terrible, but it's really not. It's like a collage of different bits of his writing from bits of his, and cartooning from bits of his career, and letting different bits of his perso- personality speak. It, it's an interesting It's an interesting approach to... A collection of someone's shit and honestly cynically Sino you found a great way to flog your fucking juvenilia without anyone laughing <laughs> Which is basically by really. asking us to laugh yeah but he did a lot of autobio stuff yeah back in the day and he's, he's good I, he's got a good voice uh, and I trust him with doing Marvel's flagship queer book I think so far he's delivering. I think the constraints of it, are, and I, I do think constraints often really make for, for good writing. The constraints of it are, you know, it's the MCU, so it's basically impossible to do something sensible. 
Yeah, that and the X-Men books have really been on a back burner for Marvel for years. This is part of their big X-Men are back baby relaunch of, of the X-Men. Uh, it's funky and casual and postmodern, and do you know what? I really warmed to it. I can't stand the art, but we'll get to that. Warmed to it. So it's full of those. Um, he did it, Simon Grace did an episode of J.M. Miles Explained the X-Men a while back where he issued a pun warning. Like He's like, this is going to be full of Iceman puns. I've decided that's who Bobby Drake is. He's always been a bit dodgy at Spider-Man like that. But. Yeah. And there's a full-on joke in the, in the first issue where young Bobby says, I'm going to get you a dad joke jar. Um, he makes knowingly big cheesy grin shit jokes. I like it. Yeah. Um it's I think a, that's part of the part of the fact is that the people who've grown up with that character and let's be honest, not a hugely well known character, um, have grown up with the eighties Spider Man and Friends version. Mm. Um, at least partly in mind. That's been that's Iceman for a lot of people. And that was Saturday morning cartoon humour, everyone laughs at the end. Yeah, and I love that and in that the stuck. In the first in the opening well, not the opening page, but the opening scene. The opening scene where something happens. Um, old Bobby and young Bobby are fighting, training, goofing off in the danger room, trying out their ice powers. And young Bobby is the derpy snowman version from original X-Men. Yeah. His ice form is the shit one. And old Bobby is like the... Sculpted Big, spiky, ab- terrifying... Sculpted ab- abs ice mannequin. Mm. Uh, and they're just kind of dicking about and telling jokes. Um, and they do sort of have distinct voices. And then they come out of ice form and you can't tell anyone's face apart because the art is kind of phoned in. But mm, mainstream superhero comics, whatever. Can't really tell a lot from 22 pages, right? But it, it's got, a, it's got a, a gentleness and a kindness to it. It's parenthesized by old Bobby setting up his first dating profile as an out gay man yeah and this is something Santa Grace talked about in Jane Miles and I'm not just gonna you should just go and listen to that they're one of the many much better comics podcasts than us and they do only get to talk about the X-Men though which I would have blown my fucking brains out at this point I reckon I could live with it there's so much my weird shit in there uh, well and an X-Men podcast oh. but it's fine I can you know listen to theirs without having to wash your cranial scraps out of my shirt handy Mm. Yeah, it saves saves on, on biological detergent and that shit does irritate the skin one of the things that I think so you mentioned the framing device of the, the, the dating mm. profile one of the things that's really nice in the way that it's set up is that Bobby's like an out and out superhero he's got this he's personally just a fucking mess um, he's just bad at Adulting, he is not he, good at that. He's, he is, but he's, he's not incredible. exactly been thrown a bone. So a large part of the episode is um, is about his relationship with his parents, and they're proper shits to him. I mean, he's not great at handling that relationship, but they're not good dudes. No, no, and I think they were kind of largely modelled on the version of his parents from the second X Men film. Have you tried just not being a mutant? Is a line they basically get. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's it, it's nice that it sort of balances this complete fuck up with his extraordinarily capable superhero self. 
And there's an identity adoption, a kind of identity performance thing going on there. So there's, he has this repeated refrain, in, again, in the zone of the first issue, I don't know if it's become a thing, of I am Iceman, I'm one of the original mutants. Not kind of don't you know who I am, but sort of this is a character I inhabit, this is a character that know, that the world has an understanding of. He's basically standing there yelling, you have fucking context for Iceman. And he doesn't have context for Bobby Drake. Yeah. And it never quite says that as on the nose as I just did there, because, you know, it's actual writing as opposed to me wanking on. Um, but it sells it really well, I think. And one, again, one, one of the things that, that the Santa Grace, the, the, the writer, has come out and says was is that he is really interested in this experience that we don't see very much in... Queer stuff has a reasonable presence in mainstream culture now. Um, but one of the things you don't see much of, and to be honest, you don't see much of it in queer cinema, really, is people coming out and having to find their way in later life. And I don't mean like pensioners or whatever, I mean, you know, being in your 30s or something and being out or kind of for the first time or coming to terms with... The cultural paradigm for a coming out story is getting younger, as basically as acceptance is getting better. So it used to be movies about hesitantly touching awkward pointy boys in their mid-twenties, and by now it's probably soppy adorable chased hugs for tweens. Like, I don't know what the ambient coming out movie looks like, but I bet it's a fucking Disney advert. Yeah, we went mainstream. Pretty hard. There's a trend actually. There's a kind of. I think I touched on this in the, the the queer stuff podcast. There's a bit of a trend in gay men, mostly around or a bit older than my age, who never went through the bad years but didn't get the full flush of the good ones. Kind of young queer Gen Xers or old queer millennials, I guess, who are like. Whole being a bit illegal and outre must have been a bit romantic if you don't think about the horrible persecution. That, that's what, I don't want to be that guy. I'm not. I'm not sort of being that guy about it. But it does feel like there is a cultural moment of that at the moment. Like particularly, we're in Pride Month as we're recording this. There has been a bit of uh, a, a sort of this is all very nice and comfortable. Don't forget where this came from. Yeah. And I don't want to kick back at the nice and comfortable. The The fact that average age... I think some polling I saw a while ago suggested that the average age of gay men coming out had sort of pushed back to, what, 14 or 15 or something. That's incredible. That's massive progress. And so if queer cinema becomes dominated by adorable moppets limply holding hands, well, fine, you know, pushes, whatever, that, that's great, that's progress. But... There are other stories to be told. There's not forgetting our history. It's super important not to forget our history. And then there's stories like this, which is, you know, Bobby's... I mean, realistically, Bobby's probably about 70 by now, but, you know, magic of continuity. He's got to be, what, in his late 30s? Possibly, yeah. It's very, very hard to tell. I think last time they checked, which was 2011 or so, I think around 15 years was meant to have passed in continuity. And it's basically measured from the point at which... Spider-Man appeared mm. because if you start looking at fixed points like World War Two, which yeah. is Magneto's origin, which is Captain America's origin, it gets a little bit harder. 
they've got sci-fi reasons for being in those fixed points everyone else kind of slides around a bit it's really not fair like we look at this and say this is obvious bollocks it's an artifact of a combination of shoehorning thing and over year over the years and sloppy writing shakespeare does it in othello and everyone says the double time scheme is an interesting semantic tension people are used to it i think it's not actually that hard it exists in soap opera it exists in the bond films you just just, ignore it yeah yeah you just get on with it the comic isn't just about Bobby Drake being gay. This isn't. This is Iceman. It's not Bobby Drake on Tinder. Yeah, but Bobby Drake is on Tinder in Iceman, and that's important. What else? <laughs> oh, a couple of other one shots. Um, so I'm keeping up with Godshaper. Still good. Also kind of queer. Also kind of interesting. Beautifully coloured and designed. Jonas Goonface. Yes, please. Sometimes an artist-writer combination just seems so well-fitted together that it seems fucking unfair. Yeah. Your canonical one of those at the moment is Gillian and McKelvey, but this is, like, the, the pairing on, on Godshaper is... It just clicks beautifully. I think... Uh, I can't remember if we're calling him Cy or Simon anymore. Mm. I think it's Simon now. Mm. Simon Spurrier seems to take risks on first-time artists mm. a little bit more. So I don't and think it worked with Havoc. I thought that would have been a much better book with a different artist, but I don't know which one. Um, but Six Gun Gorilla, mm. which was him and Jeff Stokely, absolutely perfect for the material, something that we hadn't seen before, and it just worked. Like, Jeff Stokely's style came out of nowhere, mm. and I feel very much the same with Jonas Goonface. Like, he's been doing stuff on the internet, but in terms of sort of yeah. ongoing comic series... This is the first. Who's drawing Winnebago Graveyard? Alison Sampson. Because that's what I wanted Havoc to look like. Okay. The interiors on that aren't quite as cool as the covers. But they're still pretty cool. Yeah. No, um... Godshaper, there's a world in which technology and basically everything useful has stopped working, but that's fine because everyone has a god and prayer has become currency. That sounds like the most preposterous high-concept wank, and it probably was when he first thought of it, but it's being beautifully executed as this sort of post-depression hobo mood piece with intrigues. Yeah, it's kind of compressed everything from the sort of the 1930s up to about 1987 into a couple of short years. Yeah, in a wonderful way. You've kind of got... Well, you obviously had, like... kickback reflexive social movements back then but it's sort of like punk and the 1950s biker scene have crammed into the sort of the the outcasts of this world um the people who aren't accepting of it everyone else has sort of become grubby uber capitalists because they have to because that's how things work but the the outsiders sort of feel like punk a new romanticism and bits of 1950s... Um... Yeah. Oh, this, I mean, this is one of the things that's most interesting about it, which it doesn't point at. It lets it... So it points at the story of any, the shape, the shape the shapers are people who don't have a god but can manipulate other people. It, it points at his story and the things that are happening to them. But the stuff that comes up through the cracks, it, it's a really good piece of incidental world building. The world building has been very clearly thought out, but he's not feeling the need to point a spotlight on it. Um, well, but, yeah... A lot of it revolves around a musical genre, performance genre that doesn't exist. And there's so many details that it invites you to invent your own version in your head. There's a, there was a wonderful thread on Twitter of people explaining what they thought it sounded like. 
I, I thought that was fantastic. I didn't see that, but that sounds. Um, yeah, it's. But the, 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 you, you talk. You said sort of a grimy uber capitalist, but it's one of the things. Like one of the glib observations about Wickdiv that sort of suddenly hits you somewhere in the middle of the first issue or somewhere in the middle of the first time you spend any time thinking about it is we have no idea until quite later whether they're actually singing or doing something else. We have no idea what this sounds like. A completely auditory experience is being encoded in a completely visual medium. That's interesting. And there's a lot of that with the way the world hangs together in Godshaper. So, for example, if you think about it, it's basically impossible for jobs to exist. Yeah, which means it's basically impossible for something that resembles the current world to exist. So, of course, it's got that slightly scrapbook aesthetic. Everyone is kind of doing a Simpsons-esque get-rich-quick scheme. Yeah, it's it's the kind of bullshit barter society that everyone stops just short of describing in their sort of sophomoric internet message board libertarian threads. Those people never seem to understand that they're describing feudalism. No, strange that. Uh, where, who's going to create all that hair dye they need? My favourite thing about Godshaper is reading Godshaper. My second favourite thing about Godshaper is thinking about the world. And it's not often that a comic comes along and gives you a one of those. I'm not caught up, but I very much enjoyed the first issue and I'm going to pick up the trade when it comes out. Regardless of being quite a good story so far, it's also just really lovely to splash around it. He, he's got another book coming out fairly soon. Oh, this sounds with, amazing. Um Casper Wingard, who was on yeah. Limbo. Went Limbo, the book that we couldn't pimp hard enough that no fucker bought. I'm shaking my fist in the microphone. I'm, I'm not, but I'd like you to believe I'm, that I am. I'm quite cross. Y'all you should have bought and read Limbo. It was amazing. I bought it twice. Yeah, I think I double dipped. I've got digital and trades. But yeah, Angelic, I think, is the yeah, name of the Yeah, so me. this is... Well, this is scrap punk. Um, if I wanted to be an absolute cunt, I'd say Warren Ellis is Freak Angels, but it looks cuddly and it's got flying chimps. But that's probably unnecessarily reductive because we've not read it. No. Um, Post-ecological collapse world, sentient animals, some of them fused to technology. Um, a plucky young flying chimp goes on an adventure and there appear to be jetpack battle dolphins. It's really hard to tell what's going on from the preview other than that it looks fucking amazing. Yes. Because Casper Wingard. Have you read anything else? Yeah, just, just, I mean, just the one thing, um, which is the Bulletproof Coffin one-shot by, obviously, Shaky, uh, Shaky King and David Heim. You kind of just have to read it because it's a Bulletproof Coffin thing, but it's even more meta than you might expect. For those who aren't familiar with Bulletproof Coffin, the 30-second precy of that series, the Bulletproof Coffin is... Sort of the story of some abandoned, half-forgotten 1960s superhero characters. Like, really genuinely unlovable 1960s superhero characters. That sort of bleeds into an ultra-violent confrontation with their makers, who are decrepit versions of Shaky Kane and David Hine. All in this sort of lurid, um, dayglow, super thick, lined drawing. It's like Mike Alred's art, but if he only ever traced bubblegum cards. But that was somehow good. Fair. Um, 
It's a this pop one. cultural artifact. Every comic they do together is a weird, angry, nonsensical pop culture artifact in the best way. This one is just brilliant. Um, so they did Cowboys and Insects, which I raved about. This one takes a couple of panels from Cowboys and Insects and implies it's the backstory of one of the characters. It's that self-referential. And it's, it's a single, an image single. And it's um, the centre, the actual, almost the meat. it's two comics. So in the middle of it, coloured differently, well not coloured differently, looking differently, formatted differently, page layout differently, is the story, the insect, zombie, vampire, vixens, or whatever it is. And then round the outside, with slightly different visual styling, is the story about Shaky Kane trying to go it alone. <laughs> with his transcendent genius, because he don't need that hindfucker no more. So there's a story about how they got a book deal, spent it all on various things, Hein spent his on um, experimental theatre, and Kane spent his on broads and blow. Um, he's at conventions, try to convince he's a genius and having a miserable time and flogging this comic, and then we read the comic, which is this grimy, lurid, overcoloured one-shot about the... Is it Coffin Fly, I think? The Coffin Fly is Coffin the main Fly, character, yeah. With some proper gross stuff in there. And then it pulls back out to the convention where he's trying to flog this and like doing free sketches, people only buy badges and just getting more and more miserable. Getting angrier and angrier and angrier and then thinks he murders David Hine. <laughs> and he doesn't. It's horrible. Something really bad goes down and Hine turns up and laughs at him. And it's just... It, it's absolutely delightful. The metafictional wank dial is straining at the edge of the scale, and it's glorious. The really weird thing is, like, I didn't know either of them before Bulletproof Coffin. I think it was largely their first sort of mainstream thing. Mm. And um, even then, it was bizarrely self-referential in a way that worked, because I had no idea who either of them were. So them presenting themselves as this sort of nursery home-bound Statler and Waldorf genuinely worked. I mean, they're both men in middle age. They're, they're, they're fine. They're not decrepit or dying. Mm. Or, as far as I know, riddled with syphilis. But, uh, yeah... It's very hard to know what the joke is, if you're getting it, if you're part of it, or if they yeah. even know. And I, I, I interviewed um, David Hyatt at Thought Bubble last year, and I can just completely imagine imagine him telling this as an anecdote with just on the edge of cracking to laugh about it, sardonic glee. It's... It's just great. I'd recommend... I'd definitely recommend the first two stories which are available as trade paperbacks uh, and also Shaky Kane's Monster Truck if you can find a copy it's just almost like a flip book every single page is the same clown in a monster truck travelling across an increasingly grotesque landscape there's a, there's a review of Cowboys and Insects up on the site uh, which has lots of visuals if you want to get a feel for what this style is um, it's sort of what Wall would wank himself to sleep at nights for not being able to do. What are we drinking? Oh, golly, the podcast wine. <laughs> it's been a while. That makes it sound like a thing. Like its own, just a bucket that we're scooping from. 
Don't tell them about the bucket. I'm hoping one of them will go to the police. Mm. So, um, this is... Um, wine, it's wine. This is Lenivier. It's, um, it's a Soma, which... Um, okay, fine. Look. I really like Canadian wine, but you can't buy it in the UK because um, the bits It's that basically any, poison. The things that anyone thinks are good enough to export, loads of it is genuinely good. None of it gets exported. The stuff that gets exported is horribly expensive. Canada makes amazing Cabernet Franc and Baco Noir. Makes it taste like raisins and leather and joy. And um, the closest you can get to that is Loire Valley Reds, which are like that, but a bit less joyous and a bit more pretentious. So the only way you're getting a pure Cab Franc is to go to Loire Valley, pretty much, and take your chances. So, um... Sorry, you're buying French wine because you can't get Canadian wine. Yes. We just lost all of our French listeners. I don't think we have. No, we've got like three. I checked. Loire Valley Reds have their own merits, but... The thing, the dream that I'm chasing is kind of at the cheaper end, which is the fruit and leather. And pure Cab Franc, if it's sort of Chinon or Summer or the various other Loire vineyards, um, you sometimes get that. Sometimes it's a bit harsh. This is one of the harsher ones. So a little bit of cherry, a little bit not much leather. It's, it's just, it's nice. He's not wrong. I mean, he's obviously some sort of special child, but he's not wrong. Hey, I read The Unsound. Tell me about that. By Colin Bunn and Jack T. Cole. We like Colin Bunn. I don't know who Jack T. Cole is. So he does a webcomic called Epicurean's Exile, which I mentioned a couple of episodes ago. Um, And this, I think, is his first big independent thing um, with Colin Bunn. And it's very different to other Colin Bunn stuff. So mostly the stuff that I've read of his, like Harrow County or um, Sixth Gun, mm. has been pure pulp, like very good pulp. I like I, I like everything of his that I've read, but this is much more slow burn. Um, so a young girl starts work at uh, at an asylum. It's understaffed. They're struggling to get by, and it's weird. Oh, this thing. just yes. weird in the asylum. She's got a mysterious cut on her hand. There's a sort of three fates motif going on with some of the patients. And there's another one called Xerxes who seems to be able to rotate his whole head around or at the very least does something odd with a mask made out of a paper plate that is genuinely unsettling. And... Uh-huh. At the end of the first issue, you don't really know any more than shit's going to get weird. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's him doing David Lynch as opposed to him doing high-budget pulp adventure or pulp horror. You're uh, you're visibly squirming to not say something, and I will grill you on it afterwards. I assume you're avoiding spoilers. Yes, uh, yes, to definitely to an extent. Um, but the the first the first issue is not action heavy. The first issue is all all build up, um, which 
I quite like. It's very... It's a while since I've read a first issue that has been just primarily intrigue mm. that I feel has done effective world building and had a narrative hook strong enough for me to want to continue. Um, and this does. The artwork's great as well. It's just sort of angular and unsettling in mm. ways that... It's a little bit... It's a little bit loose. Uh, it's looser than some of the stuff on Epicurean's Exile. Um, which really works for this because it adds to that air of the uncanny. Um, Winnebago Graveyard, which I'll talk about in a minute, has the same sort of thing. It's The artwork is, is not impressionistic, but it is loose enough within the framework of what it's doing that it just lets everything take on a slightly sort of ethereal feeling. So I didn't read Winnebago Graveyard. I didn't have time, but I did skip through it. And... A lot of the panels have this feeling, I, I want to call it cascady, almost like the art is trying to fall down the panel. There's something kind of loose and almost jangly about it. Um, that sort of loose or something else? More sort of uh, spiky and the, the scale is not necessarily consistent, but in a way that I think is planned. Mm. Not, not... Oh, well, that, that wasn't a criticism of Winnie Graveyard. I think it looks fantastic. Mm. It does, we might as well leap straight into that. Mm. Um, so that's Steve Niles, who is famous for horror. All of the horror. 30 Days of Night is probably still his uh, his biggest series, but he's done all sorts. That did crazy money. Like, that just sold. Yeah. Well, the film, I think, helped that as well. Um, the fil- film was surprisingly decent quality for a low-budget adaptation. Winnebago Graveyard, which is Steve Niles, Alison Sampson, who did Genesis for Image Comics a year or two ago, and we saw a load of her stuff in... Do you remember you and I went to an exhibition of architecture in comics? Oh, at an East Gallery, yeah. uh, down at near Shad Thames. Yeah, Alison Sampson and Stefan Petru doing the colours, mm. and it's not Southern Gothic, but it's that sort of mid-20th century exploitation yeah. thing that is similar like sort of carnival of souls and horror films like that where there's a fair on the edge of town and it ain't right Mm. Um, and in this case it seems like the fair is covering for a coven of satan worshippers effectively there's a lot of sort of inverted um, stars built into the sort of the, the general decor of the fair and there's a sort of Uncanny air leaning off that. I'm kind of thinking of Alice Cott's Change, which was that kind of feeling, that that thing of there's something uncanny over there, but basically for Cthulhu Mythos, Mythos does LA. Yeah, this feels more like sort of um, uh, Satanic Panic and that right, sort of right. era. Just grubby, uh, fat suburban cultists. Um Devil's Reign, I think, got mentioned in the uh, in the notes for at the interview at the back of the book, which is a uh, if if you've not seen it, is is probably the best satanic horror film starring William Shatner you're ever going to see. <laughs> but it's that sort of it's that sort of low rent. There's something wrong with the fair um, mm. thing, and it's probably not a classic but the artwork's great Alison Sampson stuff again is, is quite loose quite sketchy um, and the whole thing feels like it feels like sort of 
weird, eerie exploitation. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like it's trying to move outside of the sort of exploitation horror genre. But an affair, so that'd be what clown exploitation. No, that's that's pornography. You don't want to see what they do with the red noses. I liked it. Um, not a ton has happened by the end of the first issue. I mean, some folk got murdered, but they were always going to. It was the opening of a horror story. Um, <laughs> a family's got gone to the fair. Seems like a bad idea in the context. They've gone back to their RV. It's not there. And now shit's going to go down. A man, a strange-looking man, has told them they ain't got no law at the fair. That seems... Bad. It seems ominous, doesn't it? That doesn't seem doesn't seem good. like they're going to have a splendid time. I mean, I'm a fan of Carnival the way the entire internet is a fan of Harry Potter, and I know that good shit don't go down at the fair. So I don't know what's happening in it, but it's fun. I liked it. I've read Grass Kings by Matt Kint and Tyler Jenkins, which is about a murder in a sort of sovereign citizen community ah. somewhere on the coast um, I didn't so I keep this I keep nearly buying this book because it looks amazing and I, I don't know why I don't and maybe subtextually I picked up on the crazy I'm not yeah I'm not familiar with Tyler Jenkins previously obviously I know Matt Kim from Mind Management and Depth um, I love Matt Kim and this is again it's very very slow burn Hmm. Um, I seem to have been reading a lot of slow burn stuff about small towns um, while I've been putting off watching the new series of Twin Peaks Um, and it's it's yeah it's slow burn there's a sort of anarchist or sovereign citizen collective on this patch of land that was Native American and they claim they have rights to be there Hmm. Um, they have their own sort of law enforcement, which is the brother of the self-professed king of, of the grasslands. And it starts with him driving. It's quite a nice little exposi- expository technique. It's him driving this kid who snuck in from the nearby town back out, mm. talking to people on the way and sort of talking about the town and why they're allowed to be there. So he dumps him back over the border in the nearby town of Cargill, at which point you realise that the actual federal police are investigating them for a disappearance which has haunted certainly the the higher echelons of the town's um, king, uh, king and his brother and everyone else, the the sort of the the higher echelons of the social mm. structure there. Uh, and it's just it's it's gorgeous sort of it looks lovely scrappy lines thick black inks and then just this watercolour that's allowed to be watercolour everywhere the covers are storming similar to the stuff in um, that you called out in Descender Hmm. it's just it's 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 thick heavy watercolours and it's blotted out and it really really looks like watercolour yeah Um, and in Particularly in dreams, it gets to it gets to be that a lot more, and gets to not just be an ink wash, and it just gets to sort of fall over the page. 
And it's glorious. And again, I don't know what's going on because it's quite a tight first issue without too much explanation. And it's up to sort of two, isn't it now? Or yes, I haven't read beyond the first one yet. And do I remember correctly that Rosie Hathaway did a cover for it or did some art on it or something? I think she did one of the alt covers. Yeah. yeah. Um, very much in her wheelhouse. Very much so. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Rosie Hathaway, Fiona Staples has done some mm. stuff for it. Um, interestingly, the the Unsound and Grass Kings, which sound like prototypical image books, uh, both came out on Boom. Yeah. So um, it's it's interesting, particularly with Matt Kint and who is writing for Image for Dark Horse for Boom now as well. Colin Bunn is writing for Oni for. Uh, Dark Horse and isn't, for Boom. Isn't Godshaper also on Boom? Godshaper's on Boom, I believe, yes. So, is this uh, Boom's time? Are they... Starting to have a bit of a resurgence. Is, are they baby image now? Maybe. Maybe. The other, the only other book I, I read this week uh, was on Dynamite, which I don't think I've ever reviewed any of this stuff because I'm not they? really into Conan or Red Sonja. Oh, those guys. Um, but this one was called, is called Blood Brothers, or... Hermanos de Sangre. That's much better. Yeah. Um, I went to see the, the, the musical Blood, Blood Brothers when I was a kid, and it was fucking terrible, and I knew it was terrible even when I was 13. That's good. Uh, this is by Fabian Rangel Jr., who wrote Space Riders, which I, I talked about um, a little while ago, and which is a sort of glorious day glow Saturday morning cartoon of a thing where everyone says fuck a lot that was a that was a, a really good fun book and has just been reissued as a hardcover of that mm. tiny tiny uh, short explanation that has intrigued you the uh, uh, the AD after death hardcover is out it is um, so this this one is is by Fabian Rangel Jr. and uh, Javier Martin Gaba uh, and it is about a hard-boiled detective who can see ghosts and his brother, who is a glowing luchador, and together they fight supernatural crime. Made for you, you say? They are the police, but they do su- they fight supernatural crime, uh, and they fight werewolves and, and all sorts, mostly in bar fights. Bar fights, luchador, hardball detective. This is this, yeah. This, this is for you. It's it's exploitationy as fuck, and it's fun. I gotta say, when they started doing Rumble, I was sort of right. If he doesn't buy it himself, this is Dave's Christmas present sorted until the run finishes. Yeah, this is this is just. I mean, it's big stupid fun, and I really liked it. There's not much to say about it right now because it is a luchador. Is that an evil and, fish man in a warehouse fight? Uh, no, that that's a bunch of tiny werewolves in a warehouse fight. Approved. And a glowing luchador, and a hard-boiled detective. It's silly. It's fun. I liked it. Excellent. So I guess everything else we read was well. It wasn't something gothic. No, there isn't any. God, we tried so hard. Maybe, maybe we've missed something. Maybe someone can point to us and point point to us and say, "Well, why didn't you read this?" You There'll be fucks. some glaring obvious things. So, like, I got to five pages of Google results. Like, no one goes past the second page of Google. They probably don't even bother printing page six. But uh, looking for Southern Gothic comics in the hope that I'd miss something, 
and there is so little out there that Google, or maybe we're just bad at SEO, but Google didn't even return our review of Willow the Wisp that says Southern Gothic in the first paragraph. (laughs) Google hates Southern Gothic, is what you're saying. Maybe. Let's define the genre. Oh, fuck. All right, so... um, Empathic mimetic, ge- mimetic geography with Spanish moss. Whereas I sort of think of it as a, a product of a place and time that has probably gone and might be well past what we, we would actually require for there to be any comics of it. But I think it is essentially the, the weird literary extrusion of the mid so early to mid-20th century when people still remembered their parents or grandparents the decline of the South as an economic power with the end of slavery and the fall of the plantation system. You have the weird class structures and the strangely mannered upper classes of the American South at the time in terminal decline, absolutely terminal decline. And you have a Southern literary moment that still exists, still existed in the South. Writers who were in Louisiana, who were in Atlanta, who were there and of that time, like people like William Faulkner and Eudora Welty, and mm. later on Truman Capote and Harper Lee, and people like that, who weren't you wouldn't necessarily lump all of them into Southern Gothic, but you would say there were Southern Gothic elements, which they are all sort went of, there. There's probably a rotting mansion house, there is a sense of all pervading doom, environment is oppressive both in terms of heat in terms of claustrophobia that comes from nature reclaiming Mm. itself and there's a whole bunch of reflexive stuff baked into that there's there's the literal fear of of rot and the end of the mansion house the end of a way of life an infatuation with ruin is really visually important and texturally important but it works on different ways what one person might write as a terrifyingly sad tale of decline another might think of as a reversion to nature mm. new life the end of an oppressive system some of it is very literal and very straightforward some of it is very much a considered reflection on another person's take on the page and on screen so this is something that's going to be super important I think for its protrusion into comics or semi-lack thereof in general, but not uniformly, it issues the mystic. Often. Or rather the mythic. Yes, but not the uncanny. No. Um, God, this is precocious. But So one, one of the big this, tropes... This is the podcast we said we were going to do five years ago. You're getting it now, people. I'm sorry. One of the tropes that you see repeatedly in Southern Gothic is um, a sort of slightly creole infatuation or engagement with hoodoo and associated sort of folk religion so it dabbles in the uncanny and it dabbles in the mystic but its horror skews on average to the human monstrous not the mythic monstrous yes its monsters do not tend to be magical and that's an interesting difference with some of the comics and we'll kind of come to some ideas about why no they they tend to be tragic which is I mean, part of the European Gothic tradition as well is that the monsters are a tragic monster. And the reason I glibly said um, 
its mimetic landscapes with uh, with Spanish moss is my take on it is very much so you you've combed over Southern Gothic as this idea of a very historically anchored attempt to play with the legacy of a of a post civil war post slavery economically declining South um, a mythology around its own ruin. Mm probably a better definition than anything I'm going to come out with but I the thing I take away from it is the taste and the texture the feeling of a bayour of liminal land trees pressing down on you the idea of a kind of brocade of Spanish moss forming a, a sweaty pleached avenue um, something close and uncanny and clammy and unpleasant and that idea of that there's something in the woods horror but in its own idiom, the, the, I want to say there's something in the woods horror, but damp. It's there's some of that, but there's also the the sort of the tragic monster that exists as a result of othering. So not even in the horror genre, you have uh, like Stanley Kowalski mm. in Streetcar Named Desire, who is essentially a normal working class person, and when and he's married sort of one of the last vestiges of a wealthy Southern family. She has sort of given that up, moved into the world as it is. And her sister has not. And when her sister comes into their life, and suddenly there are two people who know this world outside of his own Stanley's in one reading, suddenly the other and starts to become more and more yeah. the monster. And... In comics, the monsters can be more explicit, but that can still be playful around identity and expectation. I think Harrow County is the fullest-throated rendition of that song, um, particularly as um, Emmy gets to know the beast in the woods. Yes. And it's kind of... It's not cuddly. It's not a fake-out where the beast in the woods turns out to be cuddly, but it does kind of have some heart she can appeal to. It remains standoffish, it remains unpleasant, but it has personhood. In another Cullen Bunn book, um, in The Sixth Gun, um, which is not all Southern Gothic, but steps mm. into it, certainly, um, there is there's the Swamp Witch, who again is a snake-themed witch, mm. in the same way that there is a snake-themed witch in Harrow County. And it's a lot more straightforward pulp. Yeah. She is very much that... She's very much that that sort of character. She lives in the crumbling mansion house, mm. um, stays away from the people, is gathering power, and gets to be that sort of tragic character. Weirdly doesn't lean into that that much. She's more of a sort of straightforward villain, but as a sort of first-run attempt at sort of Southern Gothic, before it's set in a period before you would tend to associate it, because it really was pretty much a contemporary literary movement mm. in the early to mid-20th century. I going to say, so Southern Gothic comes along in, what, the 1930s, more or less. Yeah. Interestingly, not modernist, overwhelmingly. It has some of the realist, like the psychological realist moments, but none of the formal, none of the formal modernism. Possibly. Some of the later stuff, maybe. Truman Capote, certainly. Fair, fair. Should we be briefly boring and just do a list? So we, we, we've... Um, We've made a big song and dance of there not being any Southern Gothic comics and then talked about some. But in, in our kind of trying to find... This is a genre in on the page and on film that I 
find myself enjoying without wholly understanding, which is why I kind of wanted to talk about it. And then I read um, Cullen Barn and Tyler Crook's Harrow County, three volumes and counting, spanking it out at a rate of knots, considering how intricate the art is. five oh, trades right. now. It's incredible. It's, uh, it's gorgeous. It's painted. It's beautiful. Um, folk horror stories... The opening of the first volume, the witch Hester Beck didn't die easy. It's it, it's it's straight in there. It's genre on its sleeve. It's grimy. It's lurid. It's beautiful. So you've got your Harrow County, which is fairly pure blood Southern Gothic and kind of set in the period, set in the period you would, or around the air at the time you would expect Southern Gothic to exist. Um, and that's that. You know, there are other things. Preacher dabbles. Preacher does dabble, yeah. I would contend witches, you would not. We can maybe come to that. Yeah, I don't think it's quite there. Fits the mood, doesn't fit the tick boxes. I feel it's more like your classic European, there's something in the woods. Swamp Thing definitely (laughs) does. I mean, it's called Swamp Thing. Its main character is literally the fucking swamp come to life in a tragic accident. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the Marvel equivalent, Man-Thing, or Giant-Size Man-Thing, as the original comic was called. I've been to that website. But um, Bits of Black Hammer. Yeah, bits of Black Hammer, which are piss-takes of Swamp Thing. Mm. Uh, Will of the Wisp. <laughs> Will of the Wisp, By yeah. Tom Tom Hammer. Hammock and Megan Hutchinson. Which is, we, we talked about before, there's a review on the site. Uh, it's explicitly set in a funeral swamp. I'll come back to it. Uh, Wet Moon. Yes, Sophie Campbell. Sophie Campbell. We love Sophie Campbell. So that really does... That's the one thing that I would say really fits into the, the genre well. And it's modern. It's contemporary Southern Gothic. But it's got that sort of... sense of ruin and the sense of others. And it's very well-meaning. It likes its characters, but there's still tragedy. Ruin is something I'm a bit stuck on here. So if you if you think about European High Gothic, and I, I mean I don't mean people twatting about Whitby in big skirts. I, don't, I mean I fucking love the goth scene, but it, there are two, when you say Gothic, people think of that. I, I mean European literary High Gothic. I mean. Um, the Mysteries of Adolfo, The Castles of Otranto, uh, The Monk, The Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, to an extent Caleb Williams, that kind of the long 18th century. Um, the basically early romanticism with the self-pity turned up to 11. What you, what you have there is, broadly speaking, a young heroine stuck in an Italian castle with an evil prince having feelings against a landscape. And it, it takes the, the contemporary idea, the sort of Burkean thing of the sublime and the beautiful, this idea that there are two types of acute aesthetic experience, the sublime and the beautiful. And the beautiful is small and detailed and complex and intricate, and you experience it intellectually. And the sublime is big and rugged and powerful and overwhelming, and you experience it viscerally. It, it swamps you. It's you cower before the sublime, you immerse yourself in the beautiful. Um, And those things exist in tension as an aesthetic mechanism. And it takes, basically, European high Gothic at its core instantiates that tension 
in really bad plotting about young women running around castles trying to avoid being raped. Basically. Yeah. Like, schlocky stories that attempt to instantiate 18th century aesthetic theory. So you have lightning flashes and mountains and empathic mimetic terrain. You, you, you have a world that externalizes all of this feeling and drama as an environment against which it can play. Yeah, and that is very true of the Southern Gothic as well, because I've never been to the Carpathian Mountains and I have never been to a fucking swamp, but I understand what either of them mean when you show me them or you put them in a story. But they're doing very different things. So the empathic mimetic in Southern Gothic is ruin and decay and hot, sweaty oppression. Weird community. So that, that feeling of the press of the forest is the press of the community or the culture, the, the ruined plantation, the overgrown graveyards. The, it's, the, the, it's that sort of combination. It's the combination of separation and social pressure in one weird, contrasting and ugly thing. And in a very important way that you don't get in European High Gothic liminality. So um, swamps and bayous, river deltas are liminal spaces. They exist in an uneasy tension between water and land. The plants are liminal. The creatures, um, amphibia, are liminal. There's an inherent main line to folk magic in setting something in a liminal space. And Hoodoo, as a moment, has that feel as well. And the messy intertwining of a borrowed and creolized folk religion with Southern American provincial Christianity is, is in and of itself a liminal tension. And not just Christianity, but West African religions as well. Yeah. Sorry, very briefly, because I appreciate I'm kind of galloping up my own ass here. Um, Liminality, limina, limen, something like that. It's from a Latin word. It kind of means to be around, threshold. Threshold. Like transitive and thresholdy. So, um, yeah, uh, a swamp is is an uneasy truce between land and lake. And historically, cultures down the ages have been fascinated by things that sound at the limina. Lots of gods are associated with doorways or with transition states. and they are often places of either intrigue or power or fear. And you don't usually see this with European High Gothic. It's, it's a feature of the, of the specific places of that kind of first few states to see deep south. And, and there's a, lot, a couple of people have written about this, about authentic Southern Gothic has to be of the place. It has to concentrate on, as someone described it, spend all their energy on that postage stamp-sized piece of land under their feet. The literary Southern Gothic speaks very strongly of its own place, and those places contain bayous and swamps and rivers and these tight-pressed forests. So inherent in the sense of place is something, is, is a palette to play with that you don't get if you're just wearing a bustly dress up the Capathians. There's one other small thing there, but I think it's worth raising. In the European Gothic tradition, it's, as you said, people in 90s running around stone castles, but stone castles in that represent a possibly crumbling, but... Mm. Then they would have been okay. ...permanent, as far as the writers are concerned, sense of the past. 
Southern Gothic does not have that. It has wooden architecture, it has rot and new life and perpetual turnover. Yes. Interestingly, very different. The plantation house, the rotting plantation house. The crash paddle steamer. Yeah, they're all... They're liminal architecture in the way that the castle never will be. Even if it's decrepit, the, yeah. the castle is, in our heads, permanent. So two of the most striking artefacts in Will-O-The-Wisp are in, in the landscape. So it's set on this on Ossuary Isle, bit on the nose there, Graveyard Island. So out in the swamp you have a crashed paddle steamer that becomes a place where the nebulously magical half-in, half-out-of-hell villain lives. And you have a, a, a train, like the, the train line never got there, the tracks sank into the swamp. It's, it's really glorying in, that, glorying in that liminal space. But there's something inherently transient about a paddle steam. I, I'm fascinated by, this is, this is a bit of a tangent, but I'm fascinated by things that at the time seem like they are completely sensible and then turn out to have been just this absolute technological blip, like the mini-disc player. At the time, it sort of seemed like it wasn't long for this world, but moved longer than it turned out to be. And with not much historical perspective, that's going to apply to all sorts of technologies and moments and cultural things. Yeah. Um, you know, zoom out far enough, and the idea of associating sex and gender is going to seem like a really quirky thing. Um, but, but, but yeah, the paddle steamers feel like this incredible piece of period anchoring transitory moment. And therefore, as such, can be deployed for maximum liminality. This is the thing. The, the paddle steamer, the plantation house, they are always on the verge of disappearing. Mm. And, and we have the historical perspective to know that even in their heyday, they were on the way out. So that, that automatically sets a frame of mind for both writing and reading that's always going to be there. And I think this comes to something that you were talking about, about why a lot of comics have a very different engagement. So there was no Southern Gothic in the period in which Southern Gothic is mostly set, or at least it is often set earlier than itself. It has a it has a kind of period. A lot of it refers back to the late 18, early 1900s. It appears in the mid-1900s. It usually refers back at least somewhat continues for a while and then people more or less stop writing it except as genre reference and cultural collage. Yeah. So this is where I think it starts to get interesting with comics. Because comics borrowed every other genre under the sun. Just absolutely everything and hybridized it with other genres. And that's very, very rare with Southern Gothic. Mm. And I don't think that's necessarily because it's a minority sport as such. Because some of the some of the sort of the high points of what might be considered Southern Gothic, so a lot of stuff like William Faulkner, Trim Capote, mm. um, films like Night of the Hunter. Yeah. These are... Even the schlock stuff sells. So yeah. uh, Beautiful Creatures did decent box office and the books it's based on, which yeah. are basically Swamp Twilight, but sell you, quite well. Yeah, um, but I mean, in terms of mainstream culture, there's those recently and there's True Blood. Yeah. And... That's not tons, but that's some. And in comics, it just doesn't really seem to have landed. And I think that's partly because the sort of genre diversification of comics that came after the sort of Frederick Worth implosion, where suddenly everything was just superheroes for a while, Mm. um, just doesn't seem to have incorporated it in a big way. And Harrow County appeared a couple of years ago. And it tells a very a fairly authentically um, Southern Gothic story, but it does some interesting things. So prose Southern Gothic often has, as, as we as we said, sort of has non-mystical monsters, basically. It's, it's about 
psychological oddities and quirks of culture and othering, and you see this with Wet Moon to an extent. Um, Harrow County is explicitly magical. It's it's set in probably the thirties ish. Yeah. Um, it's it's about witchcraft and folk magic, but it recursively kind of possesses that. So the Southern Southern Gothic will on the will we use the idea of the monstrous and the distorted to kind of you could sort of glibly say the South didn't need its monsters to be magical. It kind of uses distortions of person and distortions of psyche to explore distortions of culture. Yeah, one, a bit. one of the ways that that manifests in the genre that is particularly strongly brought forward in, in Harrow County is that Southern Gothic often conflates victim and villain. Mm. And, and that's what Harrow County is all about. Yeah. I mean, even Hester Beck's status is hugely ambiguous. She moved between yeah. victim and villain. It opens. Hester Beck is the sort of all powerful folk which the comic opens on her hanging. And it's never quite clear how bad she was, what exactly she did. I mean, implicitly, she ate a few children. That's not great. Um, and as, as the series wears on, it becomes clear that she, okay, she wasn't fantastic. But she was also the sort of folk healer that for the town, but not, um, not of the town thing. The um, sort of the shamanic yeah, role. Yeah. They, and we then find out a bunch of things about her relationship with the town, what she created, what she didn't. And so, yes, it makes its monsters magical, but it also really entertains what, the, what it means for them to be other, what they are or aren't part of, and uses them to kind of interrogate the personhood of the monster. So later, later, later on in Harrow County... It's sort of revealed that when, when Hester died, she's split in two, and there is notionally a good side and a bad side. Yeah. And that's obviously not going to be maintained, because that, that binary is not dramatically yeah. interesting, particularly. And we meet what looks like the evil sister. Yeah. But we also see interesting dualities across both of them. Yeah. And then in the third volume, the way people react to Emmy, wrongly because she's lovely so far, but only so far, and she feels these temptations. The way people react to her feels like it's positioning her as the bad parts of... You know, it. So it's very much doing that thing of the evil was inside us all along, that kind of... The othering of the community creates the monster, creates the community, creates the monster. So Streetcar Named Desire is one of the sort of commonly named Southern Gothic... So Streetcar Named Desire is one of the one of the stories that's sort of commonly lumped in with Southern Gothic that has that tension. You have two sort of you you have Blanche and Stanley, both of whom could be victim or monster in in this case. Blanche is the sort of overly mannered, lying, deliberately fragile character. She is she's manipulative, she's unpleasant. She tries so hard to get her own way without ever doing anything herself. But at the same time, she's sort of been forced into a life. And when that life unspooled at the end of the sort of the last, absolute last gasp of her family's money at the end of the sort of antebellum South, she didn't know what to do. She had no framework within in which to work. And outside of the framework in which being the blushing southern gal works, she becomes a yeah. fucking monster. Yeah. The fear and of, Stanley has the same sort of thing. The fear of the derelict. Yeah. As person, right? Yes. The tumble down mansion that you want to explore but is also kind of creepy. And in not a massively subtle 
take the the house that they abandoned is called Bell Reef, a beautiful dream. Well, golly. Yeah. But then you have the, the her mirror image in Stanley, who is the working class person whose life has been invaded by this, who feels put out of it, who feels put out by it, who he's straightforward and he becomes terrible in turn. I mean, you get bits, there are bits of this in The Glass Menagerie as well. The, the mother as that kind of, a little bit further on, a bit more naturalised to something more approximating the modern world, but harking back to all of that kind of southern dream and importing those desires and modes and using them to construct a world for her daughter that just doesn't work. You get it in the more gothic bits of Dickens as well. Mm. Like, which, I mean, something like Great Expectations, which is not gothic literature, but borrows from it. But you could perfectly drop Miss Havisham into a swamp, right? Uh, not just because you'd quite like her to drown. Perhaps that's that's a bridging point between the two genres. Mm. I mean, European Gothic was still alive and well at that point, but it was mostly it was. It sort of... It had become something more recognisable by... Like more capital G Gothic. By sure, then. it was. I mean, it was Bram Stoker, and it was Sheridan Le Fanu, and and people like that. And it was. It had. It had become the sort of magazine writing that was popular at the time, rather than the books that three rich people owned. Hmm. That's just the nature of publishing changed, and the nature of stories changed with it at that time in a big way and then snapped back because we forget that the modern novel is a relatively recent invention you talk about things that might seem hilariously transient with the sweep of history I mean there are loads of things that people point to as the first novel there are are loads of things you can point to but this one likes Tristram Shandy it's, it's got a relatively short sweep so in English, people like to say Robinson Crusoe or more Flanders are kind of your really, really early examples. But you can point to Dante's Inferno, or you can look at the vision of Piers Plowman. Fucking hell, the Fairy Queen, it's poetry, but it's basically Lord of the Rings for Francis Drake. And um, like with the best film in the world, the modern novel is, what, 15 lots to the present day, and there have been various attempts to deconstruct it. It ain't going anywhere, but I say that without the sweep of history. So let's look at the comics we do think are Southern Gothic. Wet Moon's kind of the one that we've called out as being the pure thing. Which is interesting because it's both the purest, but it's also kind of the punky refactoring version. It's set in ish the 90s. Yeah. Like it feels like skeevy Buffy. And the nebulous South. Yeah. So it's unmoored from specificities of place but completely has a sense of place like it creates the place wet moon in a, as, a, as a non-specific kind of canvas of what it is to be a slightly decrepit university town I guess it's postmodern American Gothic isn't it it's, it's kind of it's, it's ingested a bunch of stuff yeah except you'd expect I mean You'd expect a lot of other stuff to do that. So comics, the normal way that comics does that is that it hybridizes the, it with another genre. Mm. So there's lots and lots of horror stuff. There's, there's Swamp Thing. There's bits and pieces of creepy and eerie in those 1960s horror comics. Some of it tends to horror anyway. Yeah. But Wet Moon is kind of teen romance, autobio to an extent. Also, interestingly, sort of a bit kind of black and white. I mean, it's got stuff going on in the ink wash, but it absolutely avoids doing lurid, and it doesn't do the kind of deep browns. 
So Preacher, the Louisiana sections of Preacher, mm. are absolutely Southern Gothic. There's a crumbling plantation nasty, house. Nasty as balls. There's weird religion. There's a swamp. There's a coffin. Someone goes into a coffin in, in a swamp, swamp and is put there by the desiccated nightmare husk of a Southern Belle. It's, it's the faded family as well. Mm. What it doesn't do necessarily is have the... The ambiguity again. It doesn't. Like the Langell family are unremitting pricks. And it's interesting as well because it's preacher, right? So Jesse always brings some Texas with him in his back pocket. Yeah. Right. It's it's mashing up those aesthetics quite hard. Yeah. Which is not bad work for a guy from Belfast, you've got to admit. It feels right to me, but I'm acutely aware that throughout this podcast we are two quite posh white British people talking about yeah but as as you've said many times mimetic I do sort of understand it there's something there that you kind of you get you get it because you get it because it was that thing that one time and now it's that thing all the time no the preacher bits are a really good reference if you want to understand particularly the horror and the grotesquery mood of it um so that's Southern Gothic road trip. That's not a mix-up you get very often. I, I really just want to, we say it a lot, but please read Wet Moon. So on the one hand, it's a teen, 20-something, life exploration, university, emotional drama. On the other hand, it's it's like got stellar representation on a lot of axes. Um, yes, it really does. It's real. The people are people. Their voices are voices. It's... It's amazing how casual it is about a lot of that stuff, and that's 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 a deft hand with the writing. We we talk about it a lot. It looks striking. It's delightful. Um, it doesn't quite have like it's it's not it's not giving it to me for my Spanish moss fetish, but it does do the stifling with the community and the strangeness. The uncanny is there in spades. In a sense, it's the people out there in the swamp don't give a fuck what you think. Bit of that in Limbo. Bit of that in Limbo, Although yeah. Limbo's really interesting because it's got some a load of the tick boxes, but isn't. It's not, no. It's It's got swamps, it's got magic, it's got liminal states, but it's doing something very different. There's a lot of stuff that you would think would be there and In particular, it's got the voodoo. But yeah. It's taking it to a totally different place. It's much more Latin American yeah. in a lot of the ways that. Well, it's voodoo like, rather than hoodoo, I guess, would be a specific thing there. To an extent, but also voodoo is also southern states. It is, and voodoo is also a mashup of Catholicism and West African religion. It is. It is the specific hoodoo inflection, the specific kind of, I guess, Louisiana-y kind of secession state yeah. vibe is. It's got French piled on top, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So there's yeah. a bunch of there's a, there's a load of other stuff that we wrote down when we were thinking about this, which is you still think is a bit more Southern Gothic than I, I do. So again, so the, the the tick box exercise with Limbo does this, does this, does this, but the sum of it isn't Southern Gothic. Mm. Which is does there's something in the woods? It does the press of community. It does something slightly sweltering. Um, it's starker. It's not as luscious as you sometimes get from a Southern Gothic feel. It just it feels like a much stronger appeal to the conventions of horror genre than the con- as, as a whole than the conventions of, of Southern Gothic. But it, it, it I, I feel like it's it's just 
it's speaking a bit to that for me. Particularly, it encodes different types of things in monstrosity. Physical disfigurement is is part of it. The psychologically uncanny, like weirdly behaving children. Um, the sort of the, the casually personally monstrous conduct used to explore. But then it dives hard into magic. Um, which it then claims is weird science. I don't know, I, I could really jump either way on it. So, I mean, that's one of the things that you kind of would think is there and isn't. Um, Southern Bastards is another one that just doesn't go anywhere near it, really. Mm. Southern Bastards is basically a Walter Hill film in comic form. Also just one of the best things you'll read. Yeah. But I think a lot of them borrow from different genres. So, so Southern Bastards, Walter Hill, it's just Walter Hill. I mean, it's the first arc is based on Walking Tall, mm. largely. Will of the Wisp um, is basically a sort of all agesy, Disneyfied Southern Gothic. That Will of the Wisp is definitely closer. Um, Will of the Wisp is definitely closer. Um, Lock and Key, you wrote down as one of the things you should look at, but Lock Ish. and Key is Lovecraft, Ish. isn't it? I mean, it's it is, and you can put Lovecraft in a swamp. Well, he'd like it a lot more than he would uh, New York. So, hmm. we have to talk about Snagglepuss. We do have to talk about Snagglepuss. So. Snagglepuss, for those younger than we are, it's a Hanna-Barbera cartoon about a pink mountain lion in a top hat with a cane and somehow a collar that doesn't attach to anything. I just assume he used to be a stripper and kept the outfit. Yeah, he he wants to be an actor in sort of the mid-20th century South. Insistent that his stripping was legitimate theatre. And we talked about the Flintstones before, as DC are doing these sort of modern takes on all of the Hanna-Barbera yeah, cartoons. Like, you, you pick it up and you think, why the fuck is a Flintstones comic this good? What the hell's wrong with me? So Snagglepuss is... is uh, The same guy. The, yeah, but he's now a playwright in the South in some point in the 20th century battling against homophobia but he's also still a pink mountain lion. And just, I sort of want to... His collar to... attaches to something now. He's got a frock coat. Yes, he does. He's, he's wearing clothes. And it's like all of those weird bits in Black Sad when they went to Louisiana and Allen Ginsberg was there, but also he was a water buffalo and stuff happened. I've conflated two different comics there, but never mind. Um, <laughs> we don't know anything about this because they won't fucking release it. No, which sounds like a conspiracy theory. It isn't. It's just their marketing team started talking about this in January and so far, fuck all has happened. So... But, you know, I never thought I'd find myself saying these words, I am jonesing for Snagglepuss. I did think you would say those words, but I thought it would be as part of a complex kidnapping attempt. So yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe all new Snagglepuss will be the Southern Gothic masterpiece we deserve. But other than that, if we've missed something, like if there's something glaring that you've been so wanting to scream... Just... There's Cannibal, but I didn't pick it up. Yeah, and there's obviously the bits of EC comics that are Southern Gothic one-off stories. Yeah. Um, but in terms of sort of big well-known series, there's, that doesn't seem to be all that much. So, I mean, just just tell us, and, and as broadly as possible, because, I mean, in prose, I would argue for Susan Hill's fiction being Southern Gothic, even though it's all set in New England, but it still has so many of the tropes. Um, that it is ah, just almost there, even though it's northeastern gothic. Yeah. So, 
Lucy's like, we might argue with you in the comments, but please tell us if we've missed something. We don't mean to. No one ever leaves a comment. They do if we ask. They're very kind. They can be stirred to action. Our comment section is the creaking plantation house that people fear to enter. Don't be afraid. Maybe it's full of treasure. It's not. It's just a fight with us. Yeah. At best. He'll Otherwise, it's a racist shoot. child. Who needs that? Not us. We prefer not. Good night. Ta-ra. Officially better than clown porn.